All right, so this section that's leading up to verse 13, that word, therefore, (laughs) this section is key to understanding what follows in the rest of the letter. Peter is intentionally writing these things to them that they would grasp grasp something before he moves on to uh, his instructions for how they should live. Remind me who Peter's audience is. Can you guys remember who Peter's recipients of the letter are? Good. Yep. Christian exiles. And why were they exiled? Why did they have to go to a different place? Yeah, yeah. Persecution, right? I hope you guys are getting that and you just didn't want to say it out loud uh, because this is what we've been hitting on each time. These are people who are Christians who had to flee wherever they were living because they were Christians and they were told that they had to get out of town. There was persecution and they had to leave. And what Peter is doing before he gives them instructions is he is magnifying this idea of salvation in their minds. He's magnifying the theology of their salvation for his readers because they're there enduring persecution. They're displaced. They have all kinds of struggles in their life. Surely they're continuing to have persecutions to various degrees. And it is a great encouragement to them what Peter is writing in the opening section of this letter, making their salvation in their minds, be what it really is, which is a glorious thing. And what we're going to see tonight in verses 10 through 12 is that we, as Christians, living in the time that we're living, we are more, and this is a bad word, privileged, it's a bad word today, we are more privileged than Old Testament prophets and angels. That's what Peter's saying in the closing remarks of his introduction that beyond the Old Testament prophets and angels, we enjoy a privilege living as new covenant believers in Jesus Christ. Because the prophets of the First Testament, they did not know what we know. They They didn't know the things that we know today. We have great advantages when it comes to knowledge, but even beyond that, we have great privileges over and against the Old Testament prophets, and we're going to look into that. Uh, It is important to note that when Peter says in verse 10, concerning this salvation, he has in mind not just present salvation, but future salvation. Someone remind me what future salvation is. When our faith is turned to sight, right? Yeah, if you back up just in verse, um, let's see, verse 6 or 7? Yeah, verse 7 that our faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is revealed at His second coming, that's uh, what's in view here when Peter's writing. It says in verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Not just in the present, but in the future when we see Jesus face to face. That's the outcome of our faith, our glorification. That's the theological word when our bodies are glorified. And uh, when we consider the Old Testament believers, the first covenant people of God, the Jews, how did they think about salvation? Because obviously we got a lot just last week when we looked at verses uh, 6 to 9 there. There's a lot being said about salvation here. They didn't really know any of those things (laughs) that we're talking about. So what was their view of salvation? I want us to, to see, to compare and contrast Old Testament and New Testament. Go ahead, Rex. Well, yeah, I mean, well, you think about, um, they were sinners, right? The, the sin problem was the same in the Old Testament as it is today, right? <laughs> sin hasn't gotten better or worse today. It's just always, it's been, Yeah. So how did they fix their sin problem? What was their view? Because today we look to the cross of Christ, and by believing in what Jesus did in our stead, we have our sins washed away. They have the sacrificial system, but were they saved by making sacrifices? Okay, so how did they think they were saved? (laughs) 
Okay. This is important that we get this. Has there ever been salvation by works in the Bible? Okay. So we're going to look into that tonight and, and see what they believed about their salvation. And progressive revelation is a very interesting thing. I mean, obviously, Adam knew very little about God compared to David. David knew very little about God compared to Jeremiah. Jeremiah knew very little about God compared to us today, right? Because of all the revelation that we've gotten throughout uh, the Bible's history as the Bible was written through prophets and apostles. Uh, but, so we need to kind of put our minds in that too when we think about the Old Testament. What did Adam think about his salvation compared to David, compared to Jeremiah, compared to us? That how was he going to have his sin problem fixed? And so we need to consider those things too. Um, and we have to recognize that before Christ appeared, people were just very li limited in what they were able to know, weren't they? I mean, we have such an advantage living on this side of the cross, don't we? Where we have the history of Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, he died, and he rose again, and it is finished. And so we have all this information, and boy, can you imagine being Job? It's widely considered that Job lived before... Um, Moses, that Job was the first book written in the Bible, what did Job have to go off of? Remember, Moses wrote Genesis. So, Job, what did he have for knowledge? Just not a lot, comparatively. So, we have to take all those things into account. Melissa? Yeah, um, when you look at Hebrews 11, it talks about Abel, right? All the way back to Abel, the what, third person to live, fourth person to live. Um, one of the first people to ever live. Uh, Abel, and he had faith, and he's commended for his faith. Faith in what? What could Abel have had faith in, right? So let's start looking at this. What um, In the First Testament, what could they have known? I've got some verses up here in chapters. This is a really important one. Genesis 3.15, what's Genesis 3 about when you think, just what's the topic in Genesis 3? Say it, the fall, okay? Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, right? Do we know what Genesis 3.15 says? This is when God is issuing curses. And what promise is found in His curse to the serpent? Yeah, keep going. Okay, well, that's part of it. Okay, here's verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In that curse issued to the serpent is this promise about the woman's offspring who's going to crush the serpent. Tell me what that is. Someone explain that to me. Okay, there you go. So, from the moment sin entered the world, right? Because this is the moment that sin was committed by a human for the very first time. We have, right in that moment, the promised... Messiah of a woman, right? That's very important to note because Moses writing Genesis in that time, it's always his offspring. You know, when you go through the genealogies, it's a man, he beget, he beget, he beget. This is talking about the seed of a woman. So virgin birth, right? It's found there. Okay, the promised Messiah of a woman, and I can put that uh, in parentheses, will crush Satan, because the serpent is Satan, right? How do we know that the serpent is Satan? Not just deduction, but the Bible itself tells us the serpent is Satan. In Revelation, Satan is called the great serpent of old. Um, that's the devil himself. So, from Genesis 3.15, there's this promise. 
as we think about what could Abel have believed in? How could Abel have had any kind of faith? Well, this promise was given in front of his daddy and his mommy. It was certainly passed on from generation to generation that there's coming one of a woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent. So, from the, right from the beginning, you have the coming conqueror, the coming Messiah. What about Genesis 15, 6? One of the most quoted verses in the New Testament. Genesis 15, 6, about the life of Abraham. What does it say about Abraham in Genesis 15, 6? Okay, let's look at it. Verse, or chapter 15, chapter 15, verse 6. An amazing verse, and if you've got a Bible with uh, cross-references, you can see where it alludes to Romans 4. There's a couple times in Romans 4, Galatians 3, James chapter 2. Okay, it shows up in the New Testament several times. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Accounting, what kind of term is that? Accounting. A what term? Math term, okay, but what do accountants do? Yeah, yeah, they work with money and stuff, right? Finances. Okay, so on Abraham's account was righteousness because why? He believed. He believed. And so we have imputed righteousness here because Abraham didn't earn this righteousness, did he? I mean, if... If that's what you believe, then Romans 4 tells you differently, as Romans 4 gives us a commentary on this. He believed. He didn't work for his righteousness because what does Romans 4 say? If Abraham would have done something, he would have something to boast about, right? But he believed God, and it was credited to him, accounted to him as righteousness. So here we go, just 15 chapters into the whole Bible, we have the promise of a Messiah and imputed righteousness by faith already. Isn't that something amazing? As you're thinking about what did they know, what did they understand in the Old Testament, these are important things to, to look at. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18. Moses is talking about prophets. He talks, he talks mostly about false prophets in Deuteronomy 13. He talks a little bit about false prophets in Deuteronomy 18. But what does he talk about when he speaks of the future regarding prophets in Deuteronomy 18? Do you remember? No, well, that, yeah, that's going on a little bit in Deuteronomy 18, but he talks about a capital P prophet. Mm-hmm. Verse 15, there you go. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I commanded. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or speaks in the name of another or other gods, that same prophet shall die. So Deuteronomy 18 gives us the promise of a coming prophet who is the Messiah. There's an expectation set in Israel that there was one coming who was going to be the mouthpiece for God who would only speak what God commanded him. Remember Jesus with the woman at the well? She said, I know that Messiah is coming. There was an expectation in Israel that one was coming. And this is one of the major reasons why, Deuteronomy 18. There is one coming, okay? You know Isaiah 53, right? Isaiah 53, what's that about? Yeah. You guys aren't very sharp tonight. A lot of sleepy faces out there tonight. Isaiah 53, the prophecy about the, you said the crushed, yeah, say it again, Dean. Who? 
Okay. Um, there will be one who is going to bear the iniquities of others, is what it says in Isaiah 53, that he would be, it would be the Father's good pleasure to crush him. Okay. So this is the suffering servant passage. That the Messiah would bear the sins of others. It, wasn't, it wouldn't be for his own sins that he would be crushed, but it would be because of the sins of others. And you also have in verse 10 a prophecy that he will see his offspring, that he, after he dies, he will go on to see his offspring. What does that mean? Yeah. He won't stay dead. He, it says it was the Father's good pleasure to crush him, and he will prolong his days. How do you get prolonged days after you're crushed? Well, only if there's a resurrection. Now, I'll give you super buku bonus points if you can tell me Psalm 68 and Psalm 110, what they have to do with the life of Christ. We're talking five gold stars, maybe like a, a Reese's cup. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. We're, what we see in Psalm 68 and Psalm 110 is the ascension of Christ. Not just death and resurrection, which we have in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 and some other places, but also the ascension of Christ. Did you know that the act of Jesus returning to heaven after His resurrection is prophesied in Psalm 68 and in Psalm 110? Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted text in the New Testament. Do you know what it says? You probably do. You just don't know what Psalm 110.1. Let's look at it together. Psalm 110. Verse 1, and someone read it when you get there. No other Old Testament verse is quoted in the New Testament more than that verse. So, that you read it and you think, well, that doesn't say anything about His ascension. Well, it does talk about His exaltation, His glorification. And every time it's used in the New Testament, it's speaking of Christ when He ascended into heaven. It's being applied to that event. And so, you see lots of things in this verse. The Lord says to my Lord, well, are there two lords? Are there, I mean, how, how does this work? It's a, it's a great Trinitarian verse to work through. But the Lord is saying, Yahweh is saying to my Adonai, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So the Savior died, rose again, ascended into heaven, and is exalted. Okay. And then Zechariah 14. This one won't, wouldn't be quite as impressive as the Psalms that I just mentioned, but... Still very impressive. What do we find out about Christ in Zechariah 14? Second coming. Good. The Lord returns. Where does He place His feet? Where does He place His feet? <laughs> well, eventually, yes. And metaphorically, of course. But, yeah, on the Mount of Olives. And what happens to the mountain when He puts His feet on there? It splits. And who goes running through? Yeah, Israel. Right, good, yeah. Okay, so this is talking about the second coming of Christ. Where the Mount of Olives splits and He crushes His enemies and saves Israel. All right? So, this is just, uh, we didn't even look at Psalm 68. We just looked at Psalm 110. There's six passages, and look what we have here. That's something, huh? You start thinking, well, what did they have in the Old Testament to understand their salvation? Were they just going through the motions? They were obeying commands and hoping that their obedience would be good enough and God would accept them? No. Uh, they were looking forward to a Messiah who would be the prophet that they should all listen to, who would suffer in their behalf. He would raise again. He would ascend into heaven and be exalted, and he would come again and crush his enemies. Now, did they understand it the way we do? No. But did they have all those promises? Yes. And did they accept it by faith? And was it on the basis of faith that they were considered righteous? Yes. Yes. We don't want to fall into the uh, wrong teaching of Old Testament 
Salvation was by obedience. In New Testament, it's by faith. Salvation has never been by obedience. It's always been by faith. Abraham, he believed, and it was credited to him as righteous, righteousness. He didn't work his own righteousness. God didn't accept his righteousness. He believed, and righteousness was credited to him, imputed to him, counted to him, okay? So this is the Old Testament um, system of salvation, or the doctrine of salvation, rooted in the Messiah on the basis of faith. And there's great continuity now when we come to the New Testament, because our salvation is still rooted in the Messiah and on the basis of faith, isn't it? They were looking forward to Jesus, and we're looking back at Jesus on the basis of faith. And again, we are more privileged than they, <laughs> because it's all clear to us now. They were trying to figure all this stuff out. You know, you get Psalm 110.1, the Lord says to my Lord, David writing that, inspired, of course, by the Holy Spirit, did he know exactly what he was writing? We don't know to the degree to which he was writing, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So th those are a lot of similarities with our salvation but there are also obviously differences when it comes to the salvation experience that they had compared to the salvation experience and the understanding of the gospel. So what are some differences, both their personal experience and their understanding of the gospel? What were some things that are just different? Okay. Yes, um, in the Old Covenant, the First Covenant, there was no promise of the Holy Spirit coming and indwelling individuals and individuals being temples of God. That was not a First Testament concept at all. But that's a New Covenant promise. Um, oh boy, we're doing pretty bad on time. I'll just give you these to write down if you take notes. Ezekiel 36, there's, uh, and Jeremiah 31. Those are the two big passages that talk about the New Covenant. In Ezekiel 36... The promise is, I'm going to remove their heart of stone and give them what? Heart of flesh. And he's going to put a new spirit within them, and even the Holy Spirit is going to be within them. That's a new covenant promise. God was giving them that promise as a future event. They didn't have that at that time, but it was coming for them. What other new covenant promises can you think of? There's the indwelling Holy Spirit, but then there are a couple other things that have changed going from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. How about our relationship to the law? What's different between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? Good. Yeah, Galatians 3, the law was given as a tutor to lead you to Christ. You are no longer under law, but under grace, right? Um, Romans 7 talks about how a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but when he dies, she's free to marry another. And so you too have died to the law, and now you've been joined to Christ. We're no longer under law, but we're under grace that is brought by Christ. Good. One more thing. How about forgiveness? What's the relationship, and, and Logan, you mentioned this, but let's think Think about this. And Rex, you talked about this too. How is forgiveness different now than it was then? Okay, how? How can we come boldly to the throne in a way that's different than they could have then? What, what has changed? <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Yes. Yes, so write down Hebrews 7 and Hebrews 9. It's really Hebrews 7 through 9. I wanted us to look at a lot of verses in Hebrews 9. We just don't have time for that. But um, Hebrews 9 is where we find the statement, if the blood of goats and bulls was effective to remove sins once for all, how much more the blood of Christ? And it didn't, I'm paraphrasing. If the blood of goats and, uh, goats and bulls was effective to remove sins, how much more the blood of Christ? Something like that. Um, offered through the eternal spirit, makes us right with God. That Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to do what to it? Fulfill it. And that included the sacrificial system. Therefore, through Christ, we have the ultimate propitiation. 
They didn't have that in the Old Testament. That's why year after year they had to go kill the critters because it wasn't a once-for-all ultimate sacrifice. We have a once-for-all ultimate sacrifice. We're not re-crucifying Christ every year, heaven forbid. It's finished. It's over. We rest in the last sacrifice, whereas they had to keep going through sacrifices. And, oh, good. Yeah, that's right. They loved a grilled goat, yeah, and bull. Um, oh, I can use this little space up here. So the, the other thing, as far as their understanding of these things in particular, um, is how they didn't have the advantage like we do of seeing the space between certain promises. Like right here, there's a, there's a little bit of a gap between these two events, right? And they didn't see that. In fact, I don't think they saw that after a resurrection, he would be ascended into heaven. It would just be, he was here to rule and reign. They didn't get that he would come and suffer, rise again, be ascended, there'd be a long wait, and then a second coming. Um, this is what's called mountaintop prophecies. So if you're looking at um, the Wasatch Front from our section here, from either the north or the south, you might be looking at the mountains and it looks something like, like this, where you see all these hills, um, again, from either the north or the south, and you know, obviously, that there's a time gap, that one of these comes before the other, etc., but you don't know how much space is in between those peaks, in between those mountaintops. Now, if you look at it from the east or the west, that's when you see this kind of stuff, right, where you've got, oh, there's a gap there that's actually right here. You couldn't see it, and here you're looking at it, and you're saying, wow, that's like 50 miles. <laughs> that's a long space. So when Isaiah, for instance, receives the prophecies about Christ, Isaiah 9, uh, for unto us a child is born, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And you see that prophecy and it's like, wow, this is exciting. You're, you're seeing all these peaks. But we're living in this gap where you've got a child is born and then you've got over here, the government will be on his shoulders. <laughs> Christ isn't on the earth ruling the government, is he? Okay, let's, hopefully we get that, all right? But we are looking forward to that at his second coming, aren't we? So here we are in the gap that they couldn't see from that side. They were in the old covenant. They, they don't have the privilege that we have of see, looking back and seeing that and living in the gap. So as we consider the prophets of the First Testament, they had these things, but they just didn't have them pieced together like we do today. And they also didn't have the experience of salvation like we do today, recognizing the ultimate forgiveness of sins, the indwelling Holy Spirit, etc. Okay, all that make, make sense? Good? Thoughts or questions on that? Because we haven't even started look, breaking down the text. That's exactly it. And it's, but it's faith still. Their faith. They had faith just in the coming Messiah. And we have faith in the Messiah who came and finished the work. Dean. First nature and second nature. Uh, tell me, explain that more, what you're thinking of. Mm. The old man and the new man idea. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Jeremiah was the other one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, there's a lot to say on all that. You're opening up a can of worms, Dean. Um, so you've got who was the new covenant promised to in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? Who was who was Jeremiah writing to? Who was Ezekiel writing to? Yeah, they weren't writing to Gentiles, were they? No, they were not. So, there was a promise given to the Jews that they were going to enter into a new covenant. And for ethnic Israel, that promise is still yet future to be fulfilled for them. Yet in the meantime, and you're getting to this in Romans 11, I can't wait to hear you guys teach on Romans 11, we've been grafted in as Gentiles. So, it's already begun with us, and we're starting to experience these things. And uh, we're, we're here to make the branches jealous, or to make the, the root jealous. We're the branches that have been grafted in that we would make, make them jealous. 
But yeah, the, new, the born again experience, it's tough to say that is a truly new covenant thing. And I don't know if your mind's starting to go there, but I'm just going to throw it out there and then we're going to leave it and move on to the next thing. So we don't have time. But if they were born into sin as we were born into sin, totally depraved as we were totally depraved, and I think we'd all agree ever since Adam, we've all been equally totally depraved at birth, then they needed the same regeneration before they could please God as we did. However, it seems as though the born-again experience is a new covenant promise, not an old covenant promise. So how could anyone have been saved? Okay, now let's get back to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, let's look at verse 10. <laughs> oh, there was one more thing I was going to mention. Uh, <laughs> why did I put so much in here? Uh, one more thing that I was going to mention about the ultimate propitiation for their sins that, that they didn't have but we do have. In the Old Testament, can you think of any time that they talked about how they longed to, after death, go be in the presence of God? Like, like uh, Paul talks about in Philippians 1, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Can you think of that concept anywhere in the Old Testament? To, to leave this body is to be with the Lord. The answer is no, it's not there. So, because they didn't have the ultimate propitiation for their sins, they did not have the hope of heaven after they die like we do. They had, and actually there's a word, the word Sheol, I'm sure you've seen it, you remember that word, 65 times in the Old Testament it comes up. But heaven, as far as like the way we think of heaven, that's where you go when you die, not there. Everyone went to the grave. Yeah, yeah I'm getting there. So a couple more steps, and then we'll connect. Yeah. So they, everyone went to the grave. So um, Job said when he died, he was going to Sheol. Jacob said when he died, he was going to Sheol. David, remember Psalm 1610, you will not abandon my, my soul to Sheol. That's a messianic prophecy ultimately, but it's also David speaking. He was looking at going to Sheol, but he had a hope of a resurrection later. Um, and Solomon also said he was going to, everyone's going to Sheol when they die. Uh, Psalm, I think I wrote it down. Yeah, Psalm 89 talks about everyone goes to Sheol when they die. When Joseph and Aaron and Moses died, everyone wept 30, 40 days because there was no celebration of, they're with the Lord now. People wept. We don't weep when, some, when a Christian dies, do we, for 30 days? We weep for ourselves. But we don't weep like they're in the grave, they're in Sheol. But that's where they went in the Old Testament. All men went there, and yet we also see, again, through progressive revelation in Isaiah and in Daniel, also in Psalm 16, this idea of a resurrection coming, uh, that they would be resurrected out of Sheol. And then when Jesus comes and walks the earth and teaches, Luke 16, of course, is the famous passage, the rich man and Lazarus. Rich man dies, goes to Hades. Poor man, Lazarus, he dies, goes to Abraham's bosom. And there's a, they're close together. Whatever these things are, they're close together because they can see each other and talk to each other and ask for things from each other. <laughs> yeah, water, yes. So it seems like Sheol had two different sections or compartments, however you want to conceptualize that or, or think about that. Hades being one of them, Abraham's bosom being the other. And through the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ, Jesus led many captives in his wake. We sing that, led many captives in his wake. Um, Jesus was, through his death, allowed people to enter into heaven. Because without the final sacrifice, no one could even go into the presence of God until that happened. Because if you could go to heaven without Jesus dying, then Jesus never would have had to die. But as Jesus dies, rises again, ascends into heaven, then it seems like now, okay, when people die, they go to the presence of the Lord. That's how Paul talks. And you don't have that in the Old Testament. So, Yeah, so now we have 400 questions. So their souls, they haven't been resurrected, obviously. But they're, well, they're, they're, they haven't been resurrected. But their souls, I'm sure, are in heaven now. Yeah. Yes, there you go. And we're going to get to this in 1 Peter 3. Yeah. Masts. (laughs) 
That was after his resurrection. So you got Colossians 2, you got Colossians 2, 1 Peter 3, and Ephesians, I think Ephesians 4, but definitely those first two, Colossians 2 and 1 Peter 3, where there's the reference of he went and proclaimed the gospel to the captives and proclaimed his victory to the captives. Maybe. Yep. Not easy to draw hard lines on that. Yeah. So. Okay. We need to get First Peter. <laughs> now that we have 10 minutes left, okay, First, first Peter. <laughs> this is why we only scheduled three verses for tonight, I guess. I don't know. Um, all right. Maybe we should read these again so we remember what on earth we were talking about. Uh, verse 10, concerning this salvation. Okay, now, everything we just talked about on the whiteboard here, hopefully you can insert that knowledge into this. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Okay, so the, uh, the content that the prophets were prophesying about was um, the sufferings of Christ. This is the end of verse 11. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. These things are found in the Old Testament. Uh, We've already touched on this tonight, so maybe we can move quickly uh, through these three verses. You've got Isaiah 53, of course, the suffering servant passage that we talked about here, the sufferings of Christ. You also have Psalm 22, they have pierced my hands and my feet. My enemies like dogs have surrounded me. Um, Psalm 22 is a very important messianic psalm. Written hundreds of years before crucifixion was invented. <laughs> David saying, of a, uh, predicting what, how the Messiah would die. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Zechariah 12 talks about they will look upon him whom they have pierced. There's an idea of the Messiah being pierced. Um, So the sufferings of Christ are throughout the Old Testament prophets, and also the glories of Christ. The sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories is the way the ESV words it. The glories, of course, can include the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation, the second coming. But let's keep our finger here and turn back to Daniel. I just want to show you one other passage, one other look at this. Daniel chapter 7. This is the Ancient of Days passage. Very important passage for our theology. A vision that Daniel had where the Son of Man is given dominion. Would someone read verses 13 and 14? Daniel 7, 13 and 14? All right, so the Son of Man is given all of that authority, all of that rule, dominion, glory, all these great words. So when we think about the uh, glories, the subsequent glories, the glories that come after the Messiah's suffering, we see in this second coming, there's a lot wrapped up in that when He comes back and He rules the nations with a rod of iron. That's Psalm 2. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry with you, right? Uh, He rules the nations. So there are glories attributed to Christ in the Old Testament also. Now, even though they'd had this mountaintop prophecy gap going on, they didn't know the timing of all of these things, there is something in our text tonight in 1 Peter that was revealed to them about the timing. What was revealed to them concerning the timing of the gospel and the Messiah? Okay, there's that, but keep going into verse 12. Yeah, it was revealed to them that he wasn't coming in their lifetime. And we don't know exactly what this means. We don't have any text from Isaiah that said 
The Holy Spirit just revealed to me that Messiah is not coming until after I die. We just don't have that. But somehow that knowledge was imparted to them that the Messiah was coming after their generation. And of course, we know after Malachi, how many years were, were there from the last Old Testament book until Jesus? 400 years. So yeah, that's obviously how it worked out, that they weren't serving themselves with this knowledge of the Messiah, but they were serving us. And they were making careful searches and inquiries. You see that at the end of verse 10? Searching and inquiring carefully. They were searching the Scriptures to find out more and more about this coming Messiah. And that probably means their own Scriptures. (laughs) You think of Moses, for example, who was a prophet. When he wrote the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, he didn't really have a lot of other Scriptures lying around that he could cross reference with. He had his inspired text. And so he was probably going through and examining those things, knowing that, yes, he wrote them, but he wasn't alone when he wrote them. He didn't generate those words out of his flesh. He was carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so he was to go back then as a man like us and to study that. And the same Holy Spirit was in them, guiding them through all this as we have today. You see that uh, there in verse 11, the Spirit of Christ in them, And I love Peter's intentionality with this. There's only one other time in the New Testament where we see the phrase Spirit of Christ. It's usually the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, etc. But Peter's intentionally saying the Spirit of Christ here to show the continuity between the First Testament and the New Testament. That they, even though there were things that were different, there were also a lot of things that were the same. And the Spirit of Christ that we have today, they had which is an amazing thought, isn't it? That they are our brothers in that sense. The other place that um, uh, Spirit of Christ shows up is Romans 8, 9. I'll read it to you. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So we see that Spirit of Christ and Spirit of God, it's the same idea referencing the Holy Spirit. Um, Peter here is saying, you persecuted Christians who are in this very privileged position in history, you have been served by the Old Testament prophets. They were serving you. Uh, What was written was not for their own sake, but was for your sake, for your benefit, which is pretty remarkable. You think Peter thought the Old Testament was important? Mm, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot to see in the Bible, isn't there? Okay, thoughts or questions on that before we take another five minutes to finish it out? Making sense? Okay. Um, He mentions in verse 12 this amazing phenomenon, gospel proclamation. He says that... uh, there have been things announced to you through those who preach the good news or gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Gospel proclamation is a purely new covenant practice because there's nothing to proclaim until it's all finished, right? There's things to prophesy and predict, as it says here, but there's nothing to proclaim as a finished work until, of course, it is finished. And so Peter here is referencing the idea that we are in the new covenant, we are believers in Jesus, the gospel has been finished, so we have a new announcement, a new proclamation that we hold on to together. And the proclamation, notice he also intentionally puts this in here, this announcement came by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven that those human preachers weren't doing it of their own accord, but by the Holy Spirit. And what was one of those new covenant promises? What was the new covenant promise about the Holy Spirit? Something that we have today that they didn't have? Indwelling Holy Spirit. Yeah. So you think of, again, in the the new covenant prophecies in the Old Testament, that this would happen in the new covenant, you would receive the Holy Spirit. And you think about Peter's own experience. What happened in Acts chapter 2 with Peter when he was in the upper room? They're praying. What happened? There's a wind. Yeah. Yeah. Flames, little flames, tongues of fire. They received the Holy Spirit from heaven then, didn't they? And then what did Peter go out and do? 
<laughs> announced the gospel, didn't he? And boldly, absolutely. A changed man. Peter went out and proclaimed the gospel. So you can see not just from what was written, but even from Peter's own experience here. He's connecting the dots about first, first covenant, new covenant. How does this all work together? And he also throws in this phrase, it's not just something that we preach now with the new covenant promised Holy Spirit, but these are also things into which angels long to look. What does he mean by that? Angels long to look into these things. Can you figure out how he put that in there? Okay, they don't know the future. That's good. In what other ways are angels longing to look into this? I mean, one is obviously they're creatures. They don't know all things like God does. Yeah, there's no such thing as a redeemed angel, right? Uh, because all an angel is now a demon. And do demons get saved? <laughs> and do angels, so we're not talking about demons, do angels have sin? No. If an angel has sin, he's a... And do demons get saved? Okay, so good. We're seeing how all this works, okay? Um, there is no gospel for the angels, the gospel doesn't belong to the angels. Now, the angels are, of course, you know, they're different classes of angels. We see the four living creatures. We see seraphim and uh, cherubim. They're proclaiming the glories of God. They're used by God as mouthpieces, messengers. But they are not Christians, are they? <laughs> no such thing as a Christian angel other than angels are, of course, truth-tellers. They proclaim the excellencies of Christ, but they're not redeemed like we are. Okay? So we praise God as redeemed people. Angels praise God as creatures who don't have any sin, never have had any sin. We praise God as those who have been redeemed and were made in His image. Any angels made in the image of God? No, not a one. Not a one. Just us, humans. So um, in that sense too, angels longing to look into this, meaning the gospel is not for them because there is no redemption for angels. There's no need for redemption and Christ didn't help. He didn't die to help the angels, according to Hebrews 2. Okay. All right, we're at 8.01. Any closing thoughts or questions? We did it. We covered three verses <laughs> in 10 minutes, though. Well, that should be noted. Uh, there was a lot of other stuff. So. Oh, we're going back. Okay. All right. Yes. Yep. 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 Right. Yeah, they're souls. Yeah, so the, they're immaterial aspect. But the body's still in the grave, just like... Well, the best we can tell... Well, you see, in, so you're, talk, you're referencing 1 Thessalonians 4, where it says, um, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. So who are we being caught up in together with? Well, it says before that, um, the dead in Christ will rise first. Do the dead, are the dead in Christ also Old Testament believers? We don't know. Um, we know that it at least means every Christian who has died believing the gospel, it includes them. But does it go back before the time of Jesus? We don't know. Um, if it's not that time that they're resurrected, it would be a time future, um, probably, well, it's hard to say. Just come to my eschatology, one of my eschatology classes in our systematic theology study and work through that with us. Yeah, because it gets pretty, when you start trying to mark out resurrections and uh, judgments, it gets kind of confusing because you got sheep and goats judgment, you got bema seat judgment, you got great white throne judgment. Those are three different judgments. You've got the rapture, you've got the resurrection of New Testament saints, you've got the resurrection of Old Testament saints, you've got resurrection of all people who have ever rejected the gospel. Yeah, it's, yeah. And it's all future. So we're just doing our best to kind of see what the scriptures say. Yeah, there you go. We're looking this way. And uh, when we get there, we'll see it like this.
<laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. The resurrections and judgment, things into which people today long to look. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, they are higher than us right now, but after our glorification, they'll be lower than us, which is weird to think about. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes it's best just to say, okay, that's just the way it is. I'm just going to live in it, and we'll wait and see what happens. I don't know how you guys are when you watch movies. I don't like to try to guess what happens. I like just to let it happen to me. Like just, I'll just sit there and turn my brain off and just let it happen. Are you, are you a guesser? Okay, well, with resurrections and judgments and the classification of angels, you need to just let it happen to you. Okay? <laughs> you just, yeah, you're going to have to. Yep, yep. So, okay, well, why don't I pray and then we'll, we'll be done. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word, how there is so much to see all the time. We thank you that we can never reach the bottom. We can't ever plumb the depths of your word, but uh, we could live a thousand lifetimes and see, see so many great things over and over again and discover new things in your word as we study and, and look into these things. Lord, we ask your blessing on our study that uh, we would know what it is you would have us to know and that we would be changed in the ways that you desire for us to be changed, that we would better live for you because of our time and study. And as we gain knowledge and help one another understand things, give us encouragement for each other, that we would build one another up in the faith, and that we would uh, speak good words over one another and be uh, faithful to just serve you and to serve your church and to serve our community out of love for you and out of gospel love that has entered our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, yeah. If you want to keep talking about uh, <laughs> Abraham's bosom, I did have this. I forgot I had this with me. I was going to read to you from Josephus. So you don't feel ob obligated to stay. I'm just going to start reading. Um, so Josephus was a Pharisee, and he lived after the time of Christ. His work is really important because he uh, gives us lots of insight to the culture that Christ was in, and he also is a great exhibit A of, hey, Jesus actually existed because here's a Jew who didn't believe in him and wrote about him. Uh, Josephus wrote that the Pharisees believe that souls have an Im immortal vigor in them and that under the earth there will be rewards or punishments according uh, as they have lived virtuously or viciously in this life. And the latter are to be detained in an everlasting prison, but the former shall have power to revive and live again. On account of which doctrines they are able, on account of which doctrines they are able greatly to persuade the body of the people, and whatsoever they do about divine worship, prayers, and sacrifices, they perform them according to their direction. So, I don't know if you remember this in the Gospels. It comes up: the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection; the Pharisees did. And here he's saying that the Pharisees believed everybody went to the grave, and their souls kept living in the grave. And you've got evil and good in the grave. And the evil are going to be there forever, and the good are going to get resurrected. That's what the Pharisees taught. So, for what that's worth. Now, do we, do we say, oh, the Pharisees taught that. That means it's true. No. But is it interesting? Yes. So, there you go. That's all. Okay. Think about that when you're going to sleep tonight. <laughs>